Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Louisa Beck from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, April 1st. Today, how Joe Biden's past could threaten his presidential ambitions. The only new Republican woman in the House and why Americans are having less sex. On Friday afternoon, New York Magazine's The Cut published a story. The title? An Awkward Kiss Changed How I Saw Joe Biden. So this piece was a first-person account by Lucy Flores, who is 39 and a former Nevada legislator. This is Elise Feedback. And I'm a politics and investigations reporter for The Washington Post. Elise has been reporting on this story about Joe Biden and what it means for his will-he-or-won't-he presidential run. What she wrote for The Cut was a description of an interaction that she says she had with Joe Biden before a campaign rally backstage in 2014 when she was the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor of Nevada. He was campaigning for her. She says that Joe Biden came up behind her leaned over in a kind of prolonged and slightly intimate feeling moment and inhaled her hair is the word she used and then planted what she called a kind of big kiss on the back of her head. And she drew a very fine line during this piece. Her language was very careful. She said that she doesn't consider herself a victim of sexual harassment But in that moment, she felt violated and she felt offended by what she said the vice president did. He was the vice president at the time and they didn't have a prior relationship. And so what this piece did as it went viral is cause people to look at past instances of Biden behavior that actually does in some ways seem to corroborate her account. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people find really interesting about this is that He has this way of interacting with people that is very intimate. You know, like I I remember even watching one of these compilation videos of Biden conducting a swearing in ceremony for senators and all their families are there. And like person after person, he's just getting really close, pretending to kiss them, saying sort of like weirdly flirtatious things with moms and sisters and daughters and wives. And that is kind of how he interacts with the world. That's right. And that 2013 video is a great example of this. Joe Biden, while he was vice president, had the task of swearing in senators. And that was in front of a pool of cameras and uh, still and video. And so we have minute after minute of examples of him saying things and behaving physically in certain ways, both toward men and toward women, uh, that some people might consider uh, either brushing up against a line, maybe crossing a line. I want you next to me. I want you next to me. How are you guys? Good to see you. Come on, let's do this. 
You got a smile that lights up the room. And I was trying to think of any other national politician at this moment, of any age, who has this style, uh, which his supporters will say is a holdover from a previous era. And to be honest, one of the things that I think he's well known for and one of the reasons why he's been very popular is because he has this way of making you feel like you're the only person in the room. That's definitely right. And I think as you speak with Joe Biden supporters, what you hear, depending on their age, they have different comfort levels with it. There are lots of photos of Joe Biden kissing female supporters, older female supporters on the lips, which are jarring sometimes for younger women to see. But he clearly has a way of using this to reinforce his personal appeal. And it's something that people have had different reactions to as as we're knowing now. What have other women said about this since the Flores piece came out on Friday? So several women who previously worked for Joe Biden or know Joe Biden, have interacted with him publicly, have come to his defense in the last several days since the Flores piece came out. The most prominent example is probably Stephanie Carter, the wife of the former defense secretary. And there's a very well-known photo of Joe Biden standing very closely behind her with his hands on her shoulders, leaning around her and seeming to kind of whisper something in her ear. It's a moment that looks very intimate, particularly given the context. It was at a kind of news conference where Ash Carter was speaking to the press at a podium. And Stephanie Carter came out this weekend with a blog post on Medium. She said, enough is enough. Here's how I felt in that moment. And she says that Joe Biden is a longtime friend of their family, that Uh, Her husband's swearing in as defense secretary was a very intense and nerve-wracking day for her, that she had in fact slipped on ice in front of a lot of journalists that day, which made her feel a little bit off kilter, and that in that moment, Joe Biden was coming up behind her as a kind of gesture of support. And she said she will always be grateful for that. What has Joe Biden said about this? He has made a handful of statements when Lucy Flores's piece first published. There was a statement from a spokesman saying that essentially no one from Biden's team and Biden either recall things happening that way. But they did say that they felt it was important that Lucy Flores be able to share her story. As this became more controversial, and frankly, as other 2020 presidential candidates started talking about it on the campaign trail over the weekend, Joe Biden came out with a slightly stronger statement in his own voice, where he says, first of all, that he never meant to offend anybody. He wants to make it very clear in all of these statements that his intentions were pure. But he said that if women are wanting to talk about these experiences, that he will listen. And he's in such a, frankly, bizarre spot because he is in many ways being treated or or criticized as a presidential candidate even though he hasn't yet announced that he's running for president. And I think that's true of a lot of other aspects of his past, of his political career, that even though he's not an official candidate yet, we're all talking about the ways in which Joe Biden has a somewhat checkered past. That's right. And particularly on certain issues uh, that matter to female voters. 
one thing that I've heard over and over again from female voters uh, who plan to vote in the Democratic primary, particularly older women who feel like Joe Biden needs to do more to explain and perhaps apologize for the way he handled the 1991 Anita Hill hearings where she testified about having experienced sexual harassment from Clarence Thomas, who was then the Supreme Court nominee. Women in key primary states do feel that they want to hear more from Joe Biden on that issue. And recently he used the language that he was sorry that he could not have done more. When Anita Hill came to testify, she faced a committee that didn't fully understand what the hell it was all about. To this day, I regret I couldn't come up with a way to get her the kind of hearing she deserved, given the courage she showed by reaching out to us. Could not have done more, even though he was in charge of the hearing when it happened. And this is the response from women, right? He was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. That one little piece of diction does not sit well with women who are unhappy with his performance in that role. And they feel like it's an opportunity for him to say something fairly direct that maybe if it happened now, he would have done things differently. Joe Biden is in this moment where he's trying to kind of lay the groundwork for a potential political campaign, but that there is so much that he has to atone for even before he can announce. Do you think that there's a valid criticism here that maybe he shouldn't be the person running for president? It is something that we do hear from some voters who are leaning more in the direction of the younger female and more diverse candidates uh, who have already entered the field. Joe Biden is 76 years old. He spent more than four decades in public life. He has a very long record of things that appeal and then also are problematic for progressive voters. One of the things we should note is that Joe Biden's campaign points out that he was one of the lead authors of the Violence Against Women Act. He has made sexual violence in particular a major plank of his work in the last 10 years and as well as when he was a senator. So I think it's a mixed bag. And I think that culturally, it's a fascinating moment where there is an increasing diversity in the Democratic Party. The voices of women and people of color are becoming more powerful and perhaps mattering more. And Joe Biden, as his supporters would also acknowledge, is a bit of a relic from another era. Can Joe Biden bridge this gap? I think that we don't know whether he's going to, in fact, announce a run for president. But the statement that he put out in his own voice this week saying that he was ready to listen to women's experiences may be a step in that direction. Maybe that's a sign that he sees he needs to take that step if he's going to launch a campaign for the White House. Elise Feebeck is a politics and investigations reporter for The Washington Post. Like raising buffalo doesn't from like raising because these are very wild. They're smarter than cows. They're faster than horses. They can jump. I mean, we we had a bull that kept jumping the gate. He became jerky. Bison are not cows. They're massive animals. They're aggressive. They're a lot to handle. We had a big lift out here, and it looks like the roof needs fixing again. 
And like, here's this 68-year-old woman who's in charge of a bison farm who literally takes the meat from the slaughterhouse, packages it in, you know, soft plastic and takes it to the organic grocery store. Like, she's (laughs) doing that. She's doing that while she's in Congress. Caroline Kitchener writes for The Lily, a section of the Post that's focused on women. And a couple months ago, she traveled to a bison farm in West Virginia to interview the woman who runs it, U.S. Representative Carol Miller. When we bought this, there was 10 feet of muck in there, and we dug it all out and dug it all out and cleaned it up and then built the stalls. And we had a birthing stall, which I love. That would have been for the goats. Well, I was really fascinated by the fact that we have 36 new women in the House of Representatives, but only one of them is a Republican, and that Republican is Congresswoman Carol Miller. I wanted to talk to her. I wanted to, you know, find out what it felt like to be sort of the one torchbearer for new Republican women right now. They weren't dumb. Yeah, they she found them on the side of the road. Carol Miller's name might ring a bell. I am very disappointed to have you in front of this committee today. She got a lot of attention this past February during a hearing on Capitol Hill. I find this hearing not in the best interest of the American people. It was the congressional hearing for Michael Cohen, President Trump's former fixer. This is another political game with the sole purpose of discrediting the president. She was very fiery and very feisty and just said, you know, we're wasting our time here. This guy is a liar. We shouldn't take him at his word for anything. And this is— That Michael Cohen is a liar. Yes, that Michael Cohen is a liar. You know, this is sort of a deliberate effort by the Democrats to undermine the president. Among Republicans across the country, that moment raised Miller's profile— But she's not new to the political game. She spent 12 years in the House of Delegates in West Virginia. Last year, she decided to run for Congress. The big theme of her campaign was the president. She aligned herself with President Trump on everything. Her district is really fascinating because it was one of the most pro-Trump districts in the country. 73% of people in her district voted for President Trump. Wow. It's the coal field. She has kind of the the poorest, most struggling parts of West Virginia who have just been completely put out of work by, you know, all of the, the coal mines downsizing or closing down. Miller's opponent in the 2018 midterm was a Democrat named Richard Ojeda. Ojeda had a lot of Trumpian qualities. He was brash and outspoken and an army veteran who'd actually voted for Trump in 2016. And there was a real concern from Republicans that he had the ability to win a solidly red district. But in the end, Miller was elected with 56 percent of the vote. And a large part of that was because of Trump. You know, we only won West Virginia by 42 points last time. He, you know, came from multiple rallies, flew in on Air Force One, and it's, it's packed, and, and they're cheering for him, and he introduces her. Third district in West Virginia, Carol Miller. She's done a fantastic job. Carol. It is terrific to be up here sharing a stage with our great president. 
you can really see why that made sense to tie herself to him and everything. Why do you think the president cared so much about her and her candidacy? What you saw in the campaign was the emergence of this opponent, Richard Ojeda. And I think he really worried the Trump administration because if he had won in that district, the center of Trump's message, that would have been really bad. So you went out to Congresswoman Miller's district. What was that like? One of my favorite details that I learned about her was that for many years at the local elementary school, she was Miss Manners. She was, she's still known as Miss Manners in Huntington. And that's because she would go in and teach manners classes to the local kids. I just would make up these stories and make the kids play um, act. Made, you know, I'd say, it, for some reason, I always use the White House. I said, you're going to the White House for dinner. <laughs> you're going to dinner at the president's house. Mm. And then I'd teach them about place settings on the table. Mm. I'd bring in china and crystal. Oh, you'd bring it in? Like which like which one to which, use for and, which course? And how to work from the outside in and, yeah. and look at the shape of the fork. And, if you and I think that really sums up her vibe. I'm a little Pollyanna, I guess. <laughs> like she's just really very into social graces and doing what you're supposed to do and 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 being proper and being polite and using the right etiquette. And so seeing there her in her element, you know, surrounded by her husband, her two sons, the guy that she ran against and, you know, Donald Trump was really striking. Because I think that you've seen over the past couple of years so many different Republican lawmakers with many different personalities who conduct themselves in a very different way from President Trump, but that it still seems like the only way to be successful as a Republican is to align yourself with President Trump, whether you like the way that he communicates and like the things he does or not. And it seems like Miller is a real example of that, someone who constitutionally is is very different from the president, but that the only way to win that election, and particularly to win that election as a woman, was to bring Trump into the game. I think that's definitely true. Every single person that I talked to said that the president has completely turned the economy around and turned jobs for West Virginians around. And so the takeaway is that tying yourself to Trump works. But one of the things that, you know, I think you heard a lot from the other side was, you know, Carol Miller is just kind of in line with Trump and everything he does. Do you see anything where you might disagree? Not today. Not today. But that, um, anything I, well, if it were something of great importance, I would let his people know. Mm-hmm. And I would talk to his, you know, I would talk to the people at the White House. Caroline also asked Miller if she was ever bothered at all by President Trump's inflammatory, abrasive style of politics, the style that helped her win her district in the first place. I mean, do you, do you ever struggle with some of the things that he says? What I will say is I am in charge of what I say. Mm-hmm. And... That's, you know, I, I don't know how to reword that. I'm more interested in 
in the policy coming out of the White House in the words. Is that better, Tom? Do you talk to her about the fact that she is part of this historic class of women in Congress that has gotten a lot of attention, and yet she is the only Republican who is in that class of women? Yeah, and she'll say that some of the Democrats, some of the Democrats, a few of them, are very nice to her. She does have friends, but it was funny. She said to me, um, you know, I asked her what she thought about all of them dressing, you know, color coordinating for the State of the Union in white. Did, did she wear white to no, the State of the Union? No, she did not wear white to the State of the Union. She said, wouldn't it have been funny if I had gone in in my red and sat in the middle of them? But does she see herself as part of something historic? You know, she she really wants there to be more Republican women in Congress. She's she's bummed about the fact that there aren't, you know, I and that, that I think will become an issue for her. Because Carol Miller was the only Republican part of this large class of new women coming to Congress this year, a lot of Republicans are looking to her as this model for how or a Republican woman can win in this political era. What does her campaign have to say about how other women can win? Well, I think that's definitely true. A lot of people are looking at her. And I saw them looking at her at this event that I went to. But she doesn't really think of herself as a model. She didn't kind of see her campaign as the great white example at all. I think particularly because it got really nasty. It was a nasty campaign. Well, it also strikes me that if... You have President Trump coming in, advocating on your behalf. You don't have to be the one who's a mudslinger. That yeah. he'll be the one who will say <laughs> yeah. mean things about your opponent and who will yeah. fight a, a a tougher campaign than than you might be prepared to. Yeah. She really didn't want to go negative. Campaigning sort of went against every fiber of her being. And it's funny because now she's being asked by all these Republican strategists. So, like, how do you do it? <laughs> She would say that she's much more interested in legislating and leading. And, you know, I do think she'll offer help where she can. If, you know, people do want to extrapolate from her campaign, the clearest takeaway is align yourself with Trump and get him to to fly in and support you. And, you know, at least in West Virginia, you'll win. Caroline Kitchener is a writer for The Lily. Her profile on Carol Miller is the first in a series about the new class of women in Congress. You can read more about Congresswoman Miller at thelily.com. now, one more thing about sex. Sex is kind of like one of the great things about being a human, right? Except Americans are having less of it than ever before. And that's interesting because the amount of sex that people are having is actually a very good proxy for other ways to measure the well-being of American society. Christopher Ingram is a data reporter for The Post who's been diving into these new numbers. The share of Americans who aren't having any sex in a given year is the highest it's been in about three decades of polling. It's basically almost a quarter of American adults who report having no sex in a given year. 
This is coming from the General Social Survey. It's widely considered to be the gold standard of social science surveys. Researchers at the University of Chicago have been conducting the same survey since the 1970s. And they ask the same questions every year. And they, the sample they administer to it is very large compared to relative national survey sizes. I think it's about three or four times the size of like your typical state horse race presidential poll. According to the survey, 23% of American adults said that they did not have sex in the past year. And that increase is mainly driven by younger Americans. For example, 28% of men under the age of 30 aren't having sex. That's triple the number from 2008. It's weird because, like, people are coming to it with, like, a million different types of explanations. Like, oh, this is because of the economy, or it's because of politics, or it's because of this or that or the other thing. Like, I got a million comments being like, oh, people aren't having sex because everyone's getting married. And it's like, like, because there's the joke that, like, once you get married, you stop having sex. But, like, that's not true at all. People who are married have way more sex than people who are not married. So I talked to a professor of psychology named Jean Twen. She's with San Diego State University. And, you know, the two big reasons, one of them is that younger people are delaying marriage and delaying partnership, long-term uh, live-in partnership. The other one that Jean Twen thinks is a real big player here is technology. And basically, to put it as blunt as possible terms, she says that there are a lot more things to do at 10 o'clock at night today than there were, say, 20 years ago. You've got streaming movies, you've got the internet, you've got social media. There are all these things to distract us, ways we have to entertain ourselves. We know that sex is linked to well-being and to happy societies in many different ways. I think there's a serious concern that this decline in sex could point to a decline in overall social well-being. I don't know that having less sex as a society is good for us, no matter how you want to define good in the long term. So I think thinking in terms of general social malaise, isolation, just kind of these, these groups of people who may feel disconnected from society, I think these numbers are a really big indicator and kind of another way of getting at that question than what we typically think of. Christopher Ingram is a data reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.